in the, from the point of view of knowing the way things are <coughs> now, at this moment, <laughs> is that the, is that these are these are uh, superstitions or belief in ghosts or spirits or psychic experiences and all that. If if one is having them right now, you know, you see a ghost or have some psychic uh, experience uh, or supernormal experience, what you can know about it is that it is impermanent. And, you know, what arises ceases. So then we see the Dhamma of it. Because I mean, there's, the Buddha described his teaching, you know, and he, he described his teaching like a handful of leaves. He asked, you know, how many leaves are there in the forest? And there's so many, so many leaves. As you can see, it's the, the ones that are falling off the trees here. That poplar tree outside my caravan in this, in this past week so I shed most of its leaves and ground's covered with beautiful golden leaves. Try to count all those leaves. Like the Four Noble Truths, and they're teaching a handful uh, of leaves. I mean, it's a, this, is, this is a perspective we can always have. We can, we can deal with that. We, we can learn everything from, we need to know for liberation from just this, from a few leaves. You don't need to, to know what's on every leaf and what every leaf is like. And so they're in the universe, I mean, just think of this whole universe and all its, you know, its uh, forces and energies and planets and galaxies and, you know, and we can, we can create a whole uh, kind of sci-fi scenario about all possibilities of, and permutations on forms and beings and miracles and psychic, you know, Beings, celestial beings, physical beings, ghosts, demons, and uh, and then some people will dismiss all this as just rubbish, and and they they just want to see what the world in a very, you know, just from a kind of maybe very kind of material way or reasonable way, things that you can say this is a. An animal. This is a bear. This is a cat. The kind of thing. That's the only thing you, you can accept if you, if you. Everybody can see it, and you and you perceive it as something. But no, we don't know, all that. But the the Dhamma practice is based on not on the, on the quality or the quantity of any condition, but on the characteristic of impermanence unsatisfactoriness and not-self. So that's very significant. You're, you're, you, you can, it's, a, it's an omniscience that you're, that you're developing, but it's not omniscience in the same as a, like God knowing everything about everything. Because our way of knowing is, is quite humble. It's not, it's not uh, fantastic or or miraculous, it's quite ordinary. And uh, in worldly values, it doesn't seem like very much. 
I mean, if you, you know, people that know have all kinds of psychic experiences and mediums and that have commune with different spirits and ghosts and realms. I mean, they're fascinating, interesting people <coughs> that we can all rather admire or envy or be, you know, regarded as, you know, wonder. Or we might regard it as all rubbish. You know, they're just charlatans, just making it up, not true. But I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> if somebody says they see a ghost, am I to say they don't see a ghost? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and so this is, uh, you know, I can, I can say I don't believe in ghosts or things like this, but in terms of, of what I can know now is that I don't know all that. I can see it's possible. I mean, I can, I mean, I'm not of the kind, in my, my vision of, the potential and possibility of the universe can include every every possibility I can imagine. And ghosts, I can imagine ghosts. I can I can imagine demons and all that. So uh, that possibility. But but what do I know now? And then somebody somebody will ask, Have you ever experienced or seen a ghost? Uh, I mean, I've lived in plenty of eerie places and in, in Thailand where where they, uh, where they Wat Nanachat, the international monastery in Ubon was established in a in a in a burning ground village uh, burial and burning ground haunted with ghosts and that the villagers were all frightened of the place there's plethora of ghosts at Wat Nanachat and uh, I didn't know that when I went there in the village chief put me when he when he they, when we went there for the first time there were there were no buildings or anything so we took all these umbrellas that we live under with a mosquito net and and they they took me to the place where all the worst most horrendous ghosts lived and they didn't tell me and I lived there about a month and uh, nothing ever I didn't I thought, they kept asking, did anything bother you? And I said, no, very lovely, peaceful place. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but they've seen them there. So, I mean, am, am I to say that, that that's rubbish? You know, but, uh, or, or that there's no such thing because I don't see them. But what I can know is I don't know about that. But then I've also had experiences that where you feel strange forces in, in that around you. Is that, is that imagination? Is that I'm going a bit funny or am I neurotic? Or is it, is it that way? I don't know, but that's, you know, you're feeling what you're feeling. It's like that. So, so in uh, where it becomes superstition is where we make it, make these things into you know where we become fascinated and 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 we're no longer seeing it in terms of dharma, but we're seeing it as uh, becoming fascinated and and making a lot out of it. And then it, 
then we develop all kinds of silly ideas and fears and and rituals and prohibitions and make make all kinds of rules about this and that around maybe uh, because we're frightened or because we're grasping ideas or or these energies that we're experiencing we're we're seeing them and we're making we're proliferating on them and where in terms of actual experience if we're you know your refuge is in this awareness so then um, and in in the sangha which is to do good refrain from doing bad and that's very important like morality is the best protection against evil that there is basic human morality. And uh, I remember in Thailand some of the, the people like to collect these um, what they call prong, they're, they're little Buddhas and medallions that they wear around their necks and then they, there's a lot of superstition around these that they have powers to protect you from bullets and so forth. So during the Vietnam War in, uh, in the late 60s the uh, the Thai, well, some of the Thai military were going to Vietnam, and some of them would come into Wat Ba Pong and have, and want Ajahn Chah to give him, give them these um, little Buddha medallions to protect them from bullets and things like this. And Ajahn Chah would would say, you know, morality is the best protection. Five precepts, and you know the basic moral commitment and uh, a sila and uh, and uh, most of these people didn't you know they wanted the they wanted the medallion they didn't want the moral precepts <laughs> so Leung Po Chong used to chuckle to himself about that you know they want something that's not really true they'd prefer the illusion than have the real protection and then contemplating, uh, just from my own experience, like keeping the pre- moral precepts is a, see, it does, you know, from my own experience, this is how I read it anyway, is a very protecting uh, um, thing. It, it, uh, you're, you're, there's not a way that evil can get into you. You're, you're not, you're, there's no kind of opening that evil can take you over. So it's how I see it. It's more like, like when you when you do evil things, think, and, and especially in action and speech, not so much in thought, but in action and speech, you you're kind of opening a door for that level of energy to to come into your mind, so that you know, I say, like birds of a feather flock together, things like this. If you if you if you do criminal acts, then you tend to attract that kind of thing. Or people that will do, like, play with black magic or satanic rites tend to be taken over by demonic forces. Whereas, say, morality is like not killing, not stealing, um, a proper sexual, taking responsibility for sexual activities and not just being promiscuous or adulterous or 
or abusive in, in with with sexuality, and then with speech, not to to use speech and in the right way, not to delude or deceive or harm or insult people, and then refrain from alcoholic drugs and addictive alcoholic drinks and addictive drugs. Five basic precepts. And if you think if you can keep that level of moral moral commitment and responsibility, then you're, you've got a great protection in your life from, from uh, evil forces. It's interesting, like, like I was um, you know, in my, I've traveled a lot and, uh, and before I was a monk, I was in the military for four years, and I did, and I have been to university and gone many places, and, and it wasn't all that careful, you know, uh, I'm quite kind of adventurous and impulsive person, so, but during all that time, I hardly ever had any real problems with people, like being, you know, attacked or mugged or beaten up or even threatened. Maybe because I'm so big. <laughs> but uh, those, those kind of incidents have never, never really been very much a part of my experience of life. But basically, I'm, you know, I'm fairly, I don't have a lot of hatred or <coughs> I'm not a suspicious person or someone who's has got a lot of negativity that towards others. Uh, so I usually kind of interested and, and friendly to people. And uh, then in, uh, I remember one time in, uh, when I was a monk in Thailand, I was staying at this mon- mon- monastery and, uh, and, a, and a young Australian man came. And he stayed with me for about a couple of weeks, this, this young man seemed like fairly normal kind of bloke, and and at first I, you know, I was just quite ha- happy to have the company. So, because it was, uh, there were, he was the only other English-speaking person at his monastery, so it was rather, uh, you know, I was quite glad to have somebody to talk, to speak English with. And then, uh, and then he started telling me about his life and how wherever he went, he seemed to be beaten up by people. And, and so, you know, you talk about going to, you know, he'd been through Europe, through America, and been Tehran, where he was beaten up by a bunch of Iranians, and in India, and all these places. And he, Thailand, he was beaten up, in Bangkok. So I kept thinking, it's strange, you know, why does that ever happen to me? <laughs> Why, why him? Why not me? And then as I got to know him a little better, <laughs> I didn't, because I keep the precept. But I... <laughs> but if I... If I didn't respect the precepts, uh, I think I might have. <laughs> because he had a certain, uh, I mean, when, you know, they, I could, after a while I became aware, there's a certain kind of 
of uh, vibration or attitude, something that would draw this out as a kind of anger. Uh, not that he did anything really bad, but it was um, something, a, a kind of character tendency or whatever it was. It was, it, you know, I was, I could see why he could, why that could happen to him. Because there was some really negative thing in him, you know, that 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 seemed to, you know, go off into you, and you felt these, uh, felt these, like some people, you get messages. Another another one was like even with body language, the way somebody moves can, you can find yourself feeling a certain emotion. And this is another one was in uh, Wat Pa Pong. There was a monk, a Thai monk, who was, um, he was about the same, we had the same amount of time in the order, we were about, at that time, maybe four or five years as monks. And he was, he was from a very poor village, and he was rather, not very good looking, had a terrible complexion, and, and he, uh, he seemed to be very shy, and not many, didn't have any many friends, you see, so, and everybody seemed to kind of ignore him and run on. And me being kind of an American uh, egalitarian type that especially feels sorry for any anything that's uh, called an underdog, and since he was always sitting next to me, I began to kind of, you know, well, you know, I will uh, try to befriend him and cheer him up a bit and, you know. Not ignore him, and not, and not, and, and uh, because he obviously needs friends or something. So, he, anyway, we became quite good friends, and uh, and uh, you know, we quite liked him, and and there's no no problems between us. But but one day, uh, I was we were standing outside the dining hall together, and and he came up to me and. And he was holding his body in a certain way, uh, and he didn't say anything. But he was just standing in front of me, like in a kind of cowering, cow- in a cowering posture, like he was frightened of me, or, or he was like he was cowering in front of me, like a dog does when it has its tail between its legs. And the other dogs in the village are on the attack, and it's, that's what he looked. I mean. I thought about it later, but at the moment I didn't. I didn't analyze it, but I felt this incredible desire to kick him, which <laughs> <laughs> shocked me because because I, you know, he didn't say anything, and he didn't. There was nothing there, you know, other than the posture to to trigger off this this feeling, and I began to see how it worked, you know, like. Like even the body language gives off these messages, and and he was, and he had. He, it wasn't like he was even frightened of me or cowering in front of me because of. He was frightened of me, but it was a, a kind of, attitude in a way, and maybe he had been beaten up or, abused a lot, by, in his village or whatever. But anyway, this was, this had become a kind of way he, you know, an unconscious way of presenting himself, which tended to draw that feeling from others. You know, I didn't kick him, but 
I was shocked at that that kind of feeling because uh, I contemplated because I there was no reason you know logical reason other than the than the body language that was that he that he gave me at that moment and so this is where you know this is where we we are sensitive we pick up on each other all kinds of and oftentimes a lot is is not intentional at all you know we're not we're not, you know, there's no intention behind it, but the way we've developed or, or attitudes or past karma or whatever you want to call it makes us what we are in the present. And then if we're, like, if we're, if we just follow these impulses, then we, you know, like, if, if, if every time somebody presents himself in a way that makes me want to kick them and I do it, that's bad karma for me, as well as for them. But because I don't, you know, because a monk doesn't hit anybody, can't use physical violence, and I wouldn't anyway. I mean, even before I was a layman, I, I wasn't into beating up people or kicking animals or abusing people, but. But if I didn't have some kind of ideal, you know, some kind of moral standard or altruistic ideal, I can see why people do things. Because on the, on the world of, on the level of instinct, survival, and, and all these other things that are going on, if, you know, we, we operate according to those impulses and those activities. So then I began to understand what that, that how important it is like to have have a have a, some ideal you know the, a, a, some sense of virtuousness and and nobility and, and responsibility for yourself and on a practical level of moral kind of determinations to to go by so that you, these hold you from from committing acts or doing things that. That are hev- that are are bad and evil and, and uh, harmful to yourself and others. But you can also see why people that don't have those have no moral standard or or virtuous ideals. What why they can do those things? Because they're getting oftentimes the messages are there or the the karmic situations arise and then you just do it like rape or. This, this uh, rape is something that, if you have no, no kind of for a man, if you have no sense of respect and 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 uh, responsibility for yourself, and then 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 that kind of that's a that's a kind of basic instinct. You know that the the that that can be you know be quite uh, strong is to to see when you see a woman to go for her especially if if there's any kind of message there or any kind of movement that convey that that sparks off uh, a, this this excitement this sexual excitement but because we we do have you know some sense of responsibility and respect and and uh, standards that we that we regard as more important than that, that kind of in instinctual drive, then we don't do it. But imagine if we didn't have that, you know, why, 
How, like in a war, like in Bosnia, where they, these Bosnian Serbs have been raping all these Muslim women. And you think, how could you do that? How could you just, how could, you know, from my experience, as a, how could you possibly do that? You know, it hate, I'd hate myself so much, I couldn't, if I did anything like that. It's just so ugly and cruel. And that's be, but that's because I've I have a sense of re- moral responsibility and respect for life and and it doesn't that I don't have any sexual desires or any potential for that but the the uh, but the 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 uh, the, uh, the moral commitment is is much more important than the than than the instinctual one or the or the uh, demonic demonic uh, energy that takes you over. If you're going to commit acts like that, it's some kind of like almost demonic uh, powers that can take you over. But if you if you keep to the moral standard as, a, as, a, as something that you that you're very committed to, then there's no way you're going to do that. And then in, just like killing human beings, like we, when you started this retreat, I gave you the eight precepts, and the first precept was "bana dibata," not to kill. And that, and here we're we're much more of not to kill mice or or uh, flies or bugs, things like that. <laughs> I mean, but uh, not to mention human beings. But imagine if, you know, in Bosnia, if they all agreed just to keep the first precept on its coarsest interpretation, not to kill human beings. You know, that, that would be a moral agreement, wouldn't it? We could agree to that. It doesn't mean we, we might not want to, we might have the impulse to kill a human being. We, we've had, I've had impulses like that where I wanted to kill somebody, but I don't, wouldn't do it. Uh, and so the the um, this this is is also part of our our humanity is that we can we can have moral agreements we can agree to not kill each other, which means that when we do have maybe that desire we we don't act on it we, because we've placed that commitment as a very as you know as as the most important rather than just our particular emotion or impulse uh, uh, that might arise in, an, in a given situation. And you notice that, that morality is not a subject that is used as a s- very much in international trying to solve problems, because it's usually like power struggling and wheeling and dealing and and so forth that you're, you're doing to manipulate the conditions of people finally give up and agree to certain kind of political agreements or whatever. But in terms of of moral agreement, that's that's the that's the most important to respect the the right to live of, of at least other human beings. And to me, that's a wonderful thing. It's, 
It'd be horrible if we couldn't, you know, if, if, if every time I, you know, every impulse, every thing that entered my mind I followed, that would be, we'd all be, it'd be it would be hell. And probably we'll, we wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't certainly be here. A place like this couldn't exist. But because we, we aspire, we have aspiration, we have ability to make a resolution, a commitment, to, to, um, to relinquish things that we love, like, like being celibate, for example. You're relinquishing one of the great pleasures that human beings have, sexual, sexuality. Now, why, why would we want to do that? Why would we relinquish that? 30 years now. Now I'm too old for it. (laughs) 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 Why? Why would I give it up? Because I quite liked sex and all that. I didn't become celibate because I didn't like it. But because the spiritual life was more important to me than that. And so I was quite willing to, and, and the agreement for, for, monast- for Buddhist monasticism was celibacy. So that's, that's the deal, that's the agreement you make when you enter the order. So I was willing to, to, to do that. It doesn't mean that I've, you know, never felt any, any, any sexual desires for 30 years. Plenty of it, but but it's it's but one is has relinquished that, uh, you know, and doesn't follow, doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't act on it, and so that the, then because of that also you you begin to understand what it really is, what's happening to you, because you, in order to to bear with such strong energies, you have to. <coughs> understand them. Otherwise, you just suppress and then they kind of, you know, and you can suppress for so long and then they, then they kind of, uh, either you get very sick or you, you disrobe or you do something because you can't stand it if you just, if you're just willfully holding things back. But if you're actually contemplating the way things are and the forces and energies that go through your, your body and the, conditions that go through your mind in this way that, that we've been doing on this retreat, then it's, we can see how to integrate things and how to, and how, you know, we can relinquish, we can renounce, we can, and not in a, not through suppressing or denying or through rejecting, but through understanding. And this is, like, this is one of the, the, uh, the beauty of our humanity, the potential of humanity. And yet, is this really taught or encouraged in the modern society? You know, we're taught to be competitive and vain and, and acquisite and, and uh, to consume. And those are the messages I got so much from uh, modern life was to, to try to, you know, compete with others and, and to uh, get things for myself. 
demand thing for myself and and uh, seek a, a lot of you know be, uh, to to become very selfish really to try you know think of yourself first and that's not because I I'm, I want to do that but those were often things that that's what was encouraged rather than where say the 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 family my mother and father were very uh, moral and very good Christians, so that I did get a, a good uh, kind of moral foundation from from my parents and a good example. But in the when you think of the problems that face humanity now, with the the population of the world more than double itself in sixty years, so there's there's twice, more than twice as many people on this planet than there were when I was born. So, and then, you know, you can see it's getting crowded, like here in Britain. It's a lot of people living on this, in this one place. And uh, how are we going to live with each other? And then, of course, the, the way that you know that that is for the benefit of the individual as well as for the society is is to bring in to educate people to in the right way to begin to understand themselves to uh, to be able to take responsibility for themselves to uh, appreciate their gifts that they that we can uh, uh, you know we can't we can't help what we're feeling sometimes but we can be responsible for how we react. Whether we, you know, we might feel feel an impulse to kill somebody, but we we would not act on that impulse. We see something we like. Somebody else has something we like. We feel an impulse to steal it, but we refuse because of our commitment to that moral precept. And and so this is this is and when you when this is coming from integrity from personal integrity then it's it's very trustworthy, whereas say discipline imposed on us you know like if you steal if I I'm going to if you kill if you kill somebody then I have to punish you, or if you steal something I have to punish you. And uh, so you 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 keep the precepts because you're afraid of being punished, and that's all. And then you're not really trustworthy yet, and because when the cat's away and that kind of thing, you you when the when the boss isn't around, uh, nobody's looking, you do it. But when the police are there, you don't, or your mother or your father, or something you, you you put on your. Or the or the or the vicar or the monk, <laughs> you, you, you you want to look good so nobody punishes you. But if this is coming from you know your own that 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 from personal integrity, then then that is then we're living in a society that we can trust each other. There's a level of trust, and and in that trust, there's a there's a relief. 
Because imagine living in a society where you can't trust anyone at all. Your whole life is just spent trying to protect yourself and your things from being, from being you from being murdered or your your possessions from being stolen. I mean, life is, is pretty you know it's pretty rotten uh, way to have to live just on the level of survival in the jungle. But in terms of because of our ability to agree on on conduct, action, and speech, then like here in this retreat. We we trust each other. How did you know somebody walks out of the room? We think maybe they're going to steal my thing. But we don't <laughs> think like that. You're all in the eight precepts. You promise not to steal each other's things. <laughs> so we don't. When we sit here, we don't even think about it. Somebody goes out. We probably have to go to the toilet or something. We don't. And if if we were, you know, if we hadn't that kind of trust, then and and things were being stolen, then we, you know, we'd have to sit here with our things next to us, <laughs> tied to our body. We were a bunch of thieves <laughs> trying to get enlightened. <laughs> yes. Well, it's it, the, like the, the mindfulness is you're, you're beginning to get, get a sense for, for being honest with yourself. How are you really feeling? So that the, you're, you're be, rather than, when, like when you're trying to make a decision about something and, the, and you're just thinking about it, should I do A or should I do B? Then, and, and all you're doing is and you, and you feel you have to make a decision one way or the other, and you're still thinking about it, and then one day A looks good, and you think, I'm going to do A, and then the next day you think, no, no, A, that won't work, B, and then the following day you think, no, no, A, I mean, go back and forth, <laughs> because, because there's, there's, there's a, a lot of, you know, you're trying to make a decision based on just ideas and thoughts and and those things you know that can change you know, uh, from one day to the next and and then there's a desire to make a decision because not not knowing what to do is a very uncomfortable uh, feeling you know so we feel I have to make a decision I just can't sit on the fence I've got to choose 
But if, but if we're aware of that feeling that I've got to choose, this kind of compulsiveness, and the, and, uh, and, and the, the way that we can kind of tyrannize ourselves by, by endlessly trying to, to make decisions based on just what we feel like in the moment, or what, what somebody else tells us, or, or what we're feeling in the moment. And, Rather than following, then rather than than uh, just getting caught up into it, it, it's very helpful to be mindful of it. What it, that that kind of feeling in yourself that 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 that, that feels that has this compulsion to that you've got to decide something, or that uh, you know, or the that doubts or is concerned, and and it doesn't mean that you're you're doing it just to to get rid of it, but to be able to to use that situation to to really observe what's happening, and then uh, I find when I do that, then the then I begin to intuitively know what to do. It more or less the answer comes to you rather than than me just saying trying to arbitrarily choose one over the other, what I prefer in the moment. So, so this is where also like patience and, and the willingness to bear with things and, and, uh, and to look more deeply than just on the, on the kind of the, the emotional habits and the rational explanations you have in the moment. Uh, you begin to see, you know, more clearly how, what, what would be the best thing for you or, and, and the others involved in any decision. But then sometimes we do have to make a decision right away. You know, there are ca- occasions in life where you're forced to choose. So then, I just try to make the best decision I can and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> As a practical matter, it does work when you leave here because since I've been involved, for example, the 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 way of right speech. I think prior to being involved in Buddhism, I might have said uh, something to someone just off the top of my head, and it might have been straightforward. It might have been honest. It might have been dishonest. But I think practicing mindfulness, you think about the consequences of what you're going to say and how it might affect the other person and how it might affect yourself. So as a practical matter, that, that uh, can be used almost, uh, for me, almost daily because you're always dealing in, in language with people. So that's just one. Right action is, is another one that's also very easy to adapt outside of the monastery. Uh, if, you, if you're doing, if you're a businessman and there's two ways of doing something, a right livelihood, and one is so oh, a little shaky, it might net you a better profit or something, but it's a little shaky. And when, you, when you're involved in Buddhism, you think, now wait a minute, that's, that's not what I'm supposed to do. And you are more mindful of your, even your business activities, at least in a practical way, that's how it applies to, to my daily life. Does that help?
because it, you know, like daily life is was where you, you know, it's a, uh, I see in very for me it's very what you learn here, uh, you know, because this is like a special situation um, that you can't live in a, in this kind of situation for all that long a time. So I mean, it's a it's a it's almost spoon fed, you know, like you. It's an ideal situation, like a retreat here. But that that's to, because it does take you out of what you're used to and the kind of, you know, the, the rhythms and that that you're accustomed to in your home and with your family and in your job and so forth. And, the, and it slows, da- slows you down and, and, and the teaching and all that kind of, to develop mindfulness and concentration but then, if you become addicted to meditation retreats, you know, some people get so addicted to meditation retreats, they go from one meditation retreat to another. <laughs> they become meditation retreat addicts. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, uh, and so then they, they, can't, they can't stand ordinary life. They've got to have always this kind of thing, you know, silence and discipline and, and all that. Uh, and then, uh, because what they're doing is they're attaching to to the uh, to to the retreat situation in itself, seeing that that kind of calm and maybe they they can get very concentrated, very calm and peaceful, and then you like that, and then and then when you go home, you can't you can't keep that level of calm or tranquility uh, that you can here, so. Then you then you think, oh, home. I can't meditate. Only you know, my husband and the cat and the dog and the kids and the neighbors and all this is just you know can't bear it. And and uh, I want to go back and I want to retreat again. But but what mainly what we're trying to get across during the retreat is for you to give you the confidence. To be able to integrate this in a, in a in a in a situation that isn't so ideal as this, but where you're going to have to spend most of your life, you know, just in like going shopping and going. Going to work. Uh, Cooking your meal and so forth. These are the things you have to do, you know, all the rest of your life. You'll be doing involved in these kind of activities. How to into how to develop mindfulness in the flow of daily life? Well, now is you begin to get a an understanding and a more a kind of confidence with the practice and with mindfulness. Then you'll find you can integrate it. But you won't be you won't be experiencing maybe the level of tranquility, because the conditions won't. But that's not the point. The tranquility isn't necessary. It's it's the it's the understanding that's that that is liberating, not not the kind of blissful states that might come from a, a, a more rarefied environment. And then the thing is, you know, like finding, like I was uh, telling somebody the other day about, 
coming to England 20 years ago, 19 years ago. And uh, in uh, Thailand, for example, the idea when you're a Buddhist monk, at least my, one of my obsessions was what they call uh, vivek, or going off solitude. And they have this called well, Gaya Vivek, where you, you go off physically to some remote place and meditate like a hermit, you know. So you do cave to a mountain, and, and uh, this Gaya Vivek I really liked, you see. And so this, this solitude, you know, where you f- go off and you don't have to deal with all these people and, and make decisions and and uh, talk and that gets stirred up with problems of what others think and feel and administration and all these other irritating things that uh, that you have in a monastery. So I really like this Gaia Vivek experience but, but then when I came to uh, England I realized that that Gaya Viveka wasn't going to be possible for me anymore. Because here I was, you know, everybody was looking to me. You know, I was the focus for, for a long time. I was, you know, the teacher, the, the administrator, the president, the chairman, the whatever, you know, I was, I was it. <laughs> I made the decisions, I was the authority. And, uh, and, 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 and I was establishing these things and I was giving ordinations to people and, and, then, and then when you give ordinations like here to the, the Venerable Suvajo and Abhinanda and Sister Panasanti, you say, you say, you say this funny phrase about now you are my burden. <laughs> uh, and I used to shudder every time I said this. <laughs> so, uh, all these burdens. Where Gaya Vivek, you know, you think of, uh, you know, you go off and like these Zen poems, you know, listen to the rain fall on the, on the, on the lotus leaves and whatnot. <laughs> The bird singing and the the fall of the 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 delicate, you know, experience of listening to a snowflake fall. <laughs> the kind of lovely images of of uh, you know nat- natural images where you're so attuned in a, such a refined way and so peaceful, and then instead you're you know you're. You have to go to these meetings, you know, abbots' meetings, and they talk about things that are really boring and you're not interested at all. And you have to sit there and listen for hours on end, people expressing their opinions and and uh, whatnot. And and so you think, you know, I'd like Gaia we wake. I want to go off in, onto the cave, into the mountain. And then in, in England, I thought, no, no, you, you give up that hope. Don't ever hope for that again, but Jitta Vivek. So I called Chithurst Jitta Viveka. It's a Pali name for Chithurst, Jitta Viveka. Because that is the solitude in the heart. And I thought, 
that's that's what I can do here. This is what this is the lesson I've got to learn here in England is is not to go around just trying to get out of things physically and, and kind of cut myself off, but to find that within the mind itself, within your own heart, that's silent. So that's where I've, you know, and then, then that is uh, something that with you, even in the committee meeting or in London or wherever you are, you find a reference point of stillness. And it's like, a, and oftentimes they, they call it, you know, the cave or the cave is another term uh, one of the, the kind of mystical words in, in, uh, in religious terminology. Or, and this, and it refers to the heart, where the, not, not, a, not a cave out there in a mountain, but, but that ability to, to abide in the stillness and in the peace that's naturally, in the, that's naturally with you. It has nothing to do with the environment and the, where, you know, with people and conditions around you. So that becoming to England was a real, you know, it was a gift to me because it forced me, it really made that very clear that, that I wasn't going to survive here if I just was, you know, if I didn't do that, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to make it. I'd have to run back to Thailand off to a cave or something to survive. Or I'd be always, you know, trying to run off, you know, uh, run away from these, these situations where, where you have to go, you have to attend committee meetings and make decisions and, and be a teacher and be this and that and, and, be a, and, and take on burdens and so forth. And, uh, <laughs> and so you, 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 uh, you find that, that's why, like a, the way I've been teaching is very much from that, you know, to, because most of you, you can't go on Gaia Viveka, can you? Uh, and, and is that really desirable anymore? Or there's so many people in the world. There's going to be less and less places to go where you can get away from anyone. So, maybe this Jitta Viveka is the most valuable, at least for me, because it something that is with you wherever you are, in the airport or in the queue waiting to get through immigration, whatever. Now, you know, one can, one can, uh, you know, right now I can tune into that soli- inner solitude. So then, it's like, uh, you know, that, that is something that isn't dependent upon silent things or everything being under control or things going my way or having no responsibilities and and so forth. But it, it, you can be right in the thick of it and still, still something in you is, you know, you know how to, how to let go, how, how to trust and, and, and relax into that silence so that you're not, you're not getting uh, kind of pulled into all the, all the demands of, of, a, of a worldly situation or, the, or through the momentum of your, of your worldly habits. They begin to fade out, the kind of bad habits, the compulsive attitudes or actions and, 
immature emotions, all that begin to, you know, they you begin to recognize them and let them go and, and resolve these conflicts, these these things that are quite painful and disturbing to us. They they fade out, and more and more you you feel this jitta viveka, and then the ultimate viveka is called ubhati viveka, which is nibbana, non-attachment. And so, and then in the samsara nibbana, Mahayana, they go, they go to that. They talk about nibbana and samsara, and then the orthodox Theravada and say no, they, they, they samsara is this and nibbana is that. But actually, you know, on a reflective level, you can see it. You see the more, a more see the Mahayana. Uh, teaching is, I find that more helpful to me because so much of the, you know, like the, uh, as a reflection, because that's how I see it, you know, the, all the duties, responsibilities, things that you have to do, say, in Hiramarvati and, and uh, the position you're in, and, uh, you know, or Many of them have to be quite worldly, you know, like um, administration and and meeting meetings and so forth, conferences. But so the samsara, but the nibbana is is the is the non-attachment to all of that, where the a cruder way of looking is that nibbana is where. You know, is the idea of living in the in the mountain with with the dew falling on the leaf, and you you blissed out with just the the beauty of nature and the kind of purity of of, a, of an environment that is so thoroughly uh, kind of you know you're with it and sensitive to these these the lovelet through these refinements and the peaceful calm that surrounds you, but this this kind of Realization is you can it, even if you're thrown into a prison or crucified or chained in a dungeon, you can still do it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> At least I've got some, I, you know, right now, if somebody did chain me in a dungeon, I'd, you know, from what I know now, I, I, I have something to go by, how to relate to that experience. But uh, whether I can do it or not, I don't know. I, please don't <laughs> put me in a dungeon to find out. But if... Um, but then, can I uh, can I do it in just the the daily life in in, in the monastery? You know, can I do that before it gets extreme? You know, before it's torture or before I'm you know I'm being mistreated and abused and and uh, persecuted because you know, like say here at Amravati, you're living with very nice people all the time. They're all nice, all good people. And uh, uh, in a you know in an environment that is 
uh, I quite like the environment, the, the be natural beauty of the place, uh, this area, and you know, it's, I mean, it's all quite, quite, quite pleasing to me in terms of you know the people and the and the things that that one lives with. Can I can I find that inner peace within the existing conditions? And so this is this is like the the challenge, isn't it? Within the, with, before you know, don't wait till they crucify you to do it. Try it out with life before it gets too bad. <laughs> build up, you know, build it up gradually. Rather than wait till the moment you're about ready to die, die in the, in the, in the hospice, or when they throw you into the dungeon. Yeah, it it is. you you become like anything when you first start. You know, you you know, it seems impossible, like learning a language or something, you, or playing a musical instrument. You know, you just all it looks difficult, and or driving a car. You know, you, when you first drive a you know first driving lesson. You, what do I do next? And it all seems so complicated and and uh, difficult. And then, once you learn how to drive a car, it's an easy thing. You don't you don't have to think about it. So you can be mindful. You know, like you can when you're driving, you have to be really mindful because you you you're in a you're in a vehicle that can harm a lot of things, including yourself. So you. Just the danger involved in being in a car and driving it makes you very mindful. And then, uh, and you can't just think, you know, should I put on the brake now or not? You just know, don't you? <laughs> you know, you see a child running out in the street and you think, now should I put on the brake? <laughs> There's something you just knows immediately. The, you're getting the message right there. And you see this... And, it, and you don't have to think or, or have a committee meeting to decide. <laughs> because it's, it is, you know, spontaneous. And, but because you've learned how to drive well, then your, your chances of harming others and that is, is diminished considerably. You can still go to sleep. <laughs> 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 well, that's the thing. Even with driving, we can get, you know, we can start, you know, because you can, uh, it can become heedless, you know, just do it in a perfunctory way. But say, anything that, where your life is really in danger, where you feel that danger, like when you're, you know, climbing in a mountain or walking on a glacier doing something where, you know, you really know you have to be, you can't just worry about things or, or think about anything other than 
where you are right now. Amazing how, you know, you're, if you're tired, you can still manage to be fully awake when, when your life's being threatened. I mean, because that, that's where, where we get used to things and, and uh, where we're no longer interested. It becomes mechanical and perfunctory. Then it's all boring. Like if you're interested in something, then you're not bored. But then the interest reaches a peak and then you get bored. Like you can't... Like, like romance also. I mean, I think you're going to fall in love with somebody and you're going to feel this kind of romantic feeling for 30 years of marriage. You know, you get bored. Well, people get bored with each other. And you get bored with monastic life. Get bored with everything. Get bored with uh, having to go to Thailand. Get bored with with, I mean, you know, if you're, this is just a natural experience. Of if you're depending on things being interesting and romantic and exciting and that, then, then you're always having to go on to the next one because whatever you're doing will eventually become boring and then you, you have to find something else that is interesting. But in the meditation, you notice you're, you're willing to to look at the boredom rather than then go off to to some other thing that's more interest that that you're interested in, and that's where you get out of boredom. And it's interesting when I became a monk. I was uh, I lived a pretty exciting life, you know. I'd done all kinds of things, and it was in the Peace Corps for two years before I became a monk. I was in in this lovely place in Sabah, in Borneo. And we did all kinds of, we went out boating, snorkeling on, in the, in, on coral waters, and a lot of parties, and a lot of, we climbed Mount Kinabalu, and, and went on holidays, went to Sarawak, went to Malaya, and Thailand, Cambodia, and, and, uh, and then, you know, you were always trying to do say interesting, exciting adventures. And yet, I found myself so utterly bored living this exciting life. I felt bored all the time. And I, and I felt like, you know, I was 30, 30 years old, I felt like a really old man, you know, really like a burnt out old codger, you know, they just, you know, so bored with life because too much excitement becomes boring. You know, I hadn't developed concentration or ability to stay with anything. I was always jumping into the next thing to kind of stimulate and seek that high, you know, the getting excited. You know, like the excitement of, a, of something new. And um, so then becoming a monk was... Uh, was a relief actually because it was so boring that I looked at the boredom. You know, there was there was no there was no way. You know, after a while, you know, the, 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 it was so utterly boring 
monastic life, that that the boredom, I began to really uh, understand it and let go of it. Was there any rejection or attachment when he, at the point when you decided to become a monk? Things that you were doing and any attachment or rejection at the point of uh, the decision when you well, I was I was really ripe for monastic life. I've always I think I've always wanted to be a monk anyway. It's not you know it's not like a, because I was it was a kind of escape from all the other. But because there was something in me that that uh, that was quite attracted to it from an early age. I mean, it wasn't like a just a desperate attempt to to get away from things, but. But um, I'd, I'd really, by the time I became a monk, I was I was ready for it, and uh, and I was also very grateful because um, I mean I didn't know whether I I I I was so interested in Buddhism, but I didn't you know I didn't know where to go or. Whether they'd accept me or whatever. So, so when I went to Thailand and and then people were so kind of helpful and welcoming and supportive, I always had a lot of gratitude. You know that that that, that so many people would uh, would uh, allow me to do this to live like this. But the uh, I think I, 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 di- I didn't, I mean, I had a, life wasn't like a, like a, a tragedy for me. It wasn't, I wasn't broken hearted or, or, uh, you know, uh, that life had treated me badly. It was just, it didn't mean anything. The worldly life just had lost all interest for me. And so I just felt bored by it all. And there are still some attempts to, you know, seek uh, stimulation and excitement in worldly activities. You know, just hoping, you know, you can get a kick out of this or that. But eventually, you even gave up hope for that. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, those two years in Saba, I think, were you know, very pleasant and very happy memories. of inc- Very pleasant life there. But it was there in that rather paradisical setting that where life was, you know, in terms of people and places and and work. I was teaching English in a Chinese primary school. Very pleasant job. You know, little Chinese children. Uh, they were so much more kind of easy to teach than American children. Well disciplined. <laughs> Respected the teacher and they're lovable, and and, and you only had to work two hours a day. And these little kids, and it was quite fun. And the rest of the day, you go out swimming, and, and there's a kind of party group there. You, you have drinking parties, and they they have you know really good liquor, and then they <laughs> <laughs> and then the then they had the, uh, really good food. And all the rest, and this is incredible. Just a party and a good time all the 
every day nearly. And so I, mean, I, I enjoyed it in that respect, but, but I realized that, that it would never be enough for me just to live like that, and that the work had to be done inside. You had to work in the mind and not, not that just, you know, it made it very clear that, that even living in a paradise, a tropical paradise where everything was nice and pleasant and whatnot, it wasn't, was still mis- I still was miserable inside, not due to anything external to me, but just because of uh, selfishness, fears, desires, immaturity, and and ignorance, which had nothing to do with you know you couldn't blame it on on the place or the people or anything around you, but it was your you knew you had to to work from within rather than just seek a, another nice place to live or another interesting experience. So then, going to Thailand, I lived in the Isan in northeast Thailand for ten years. And I remember at first, I didn't like it at all, the Northeast. But what a horrible place. Just scrubby trees, flat, it was all flat and hot, and scrubby forests, you know, spindly trees. And here I, you know, lived in, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, you know, the Seattle area, there all these kind of magnificent mountains and the Puget Sound and pine forests and and so majestic and and lush, and then Borneo was a tropical paradise. Then spending the next decade in Northeast Thailand, I remember going there. I went there because of Ajahn Chah. And, uh, it wasn't for him I went. I, I'd imagine myself going to Thailand, becoming a monk, and going to live on the on the beaches in the south <laughs> <laughs> with the swaying palm trees and. These lovely spots you, you know, the tourists go to now. <coughs> you know, that was my ideal of going to the seaside and being a monk, you know, in a nice on an island or in some beautiful in some beauty spot. And uh, then I was in this uh, scrubby forest. But it's strange after the I got I really got to love it. I love the Isan now. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to the Isan because it, it, I wasn't measuring it with, uh, with, with pretty postcard photographs, but it's something else, you know. So there's a you, 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 when, when your mind opens up, then you start seeing the, the beauty around you. And it isn't, that may not be what you see, you may not notice it when you're, when you're caught up in your own views about what is beautiful and what isn't. You know, so you, if you've got, if you got very strong views and opinions about what is beautiful and then you, and that, and that, and what, where you are doesn't kind of measure up to that, then you're just critical of it. And as I lived the, those ten years there, and 
and let go of all these opinions and views, then I began to see the, the beauty around me, open to it, there. Because it wasn't like the Isan isn't beautiful, but it was, it didn't fit to the, into the perceptions of beauty that I was holding when I went there at first. So I didn't, at first I didn't notice, I only became critical of it. I think it's flat, the trees are scrubby, and uh, too hot, and that kind of grumbling mind. But then after you relinquish that, then one began to see it, see the beauty that, were, that was there, but you just hadn't noticed. 